To the church of Laodicea. You know that old saying, save the best for last? <laughs> Not so much, okay? Uh, although there are, some, there are some Bible scholars, commentators, who believe in something called dispensational theology, which believes that um, there are different, very distinct ages and times. And this especially applies with regards to the church and the church age. Uh, the time of Christ and beyond and until the end. There are some people who believe very strongly that uh, the seven churches that are mentioned near the beginning of the book of the Revelation, uh, that those are the seven different time periods or seven, seven different dispensations, and that each church mentioned there represents a different time, a different era in the stage of church history. And they believe that Laodicea, they believe they're sequential, and that Laodicea um, is the uh, last stage or the last time period. Um, I think that that view, while there may be a little bit of something to it, I think that it's too small. I think that that is a worldview that says it's all about America. If that were the case, then I could see how what is spoken of to the church of Laodicea could apply. But I think it misses the larger picture of the church universal. How many of you know that there's a church outside of the good old United States of America and that it is alive and it is thriving in places in the world? It is. And so I don't think that this dispensational view fits. I will say this. And it's kind of a, a sad to say kind of a thing. Uh, I think that this letter to the church at Laodicea um, has the potential, the potential to be written to many churches in any town USA. Okay? You want to see what this letter has to say? Okay, let's pray. Father, um, I ask that you would cause your word to come alive to us today. I pray that you would just open it to us. And, and God, even more than that, I pray that you would open us to it. That we would have the courage to see what it says and uh, the, give you the permission and the freedom to come and, and search our hearts and do something redemptive, something healthy, something good for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen? Okay, well, before we read that letter to see what uh, John wrote to the church there, uh, let me give you the lowdown on Laodicea, all right? Let's put the map up, Dave, if you would. Uh, it's a city that was about 10 miles west of Colossae. That's where the book of Colossians was written to. 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, about 100 miles due east of the city of Ephesus. Now, Colossae is not on this map because it's not one of the seven churches that was written to. But Paul mentions Laodicea when he writes the book of Colossians, okay? In Colossians 4.16, it says, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, that's a lost letter, okay? We don't have that letter. I got to tell you, as a teacher, man, do I wish we had that letter. Because I am just so intrigued. I'm so curious to see and to know if what was written in this little letter, these eight verses, nine verses, if there's parallel to what Paul wrote to them. Because John writes some pretty strong stuff to these people. Laodicea was a very, very important trade and banking center, okay? Uh, it's the kind of place that there could have been protesters there with signs that said, Occupy Laodicea. Because it was all about banking and commerce and fat cats and rich people. I mean, they were, they were all over this place. The city was known for that, okay? It was also famous for its black wool. Now, we don't know. It could be both. But either dyed wool that was dyed black or from black sheep. But it was renowned for this black wool. All right? Also renowned for its medical schools. They produced a special ear and eye salve and ointment from something called Phrygian powder. I don't know what Phrygian powder is. That almost sounds bad, doesn't it? Um, but anyhow, those were the three hallmarks of this place. And I want you to watch how those three things play into what the Apostle John wrote to them. 
because of the banking and trading industry and, and that being a commerce center, Laodicea was extremely wealthy. How wealthy were they? You remember earlier when we were looking at the church in Philadelphia and we said how that church was destroyed a couple times by earthquakes? This city also was destroyed in AD 60 by an earthquake. Now get, check this out. When the Roman emperor, empire's uh, equivalent to FEMA came into town and said, here, we'll give you money, we'll help you rebuild. You know what Laodicea said? We don't need your money. No thanks. We'll take care of ourselves. We'll rebuild it ourselves. You know, on the one hand, there's something I think commendable about not always having your hand out and wanting somebody to come help me. This attitude went way, way, way beyond that. These people were filled, filled with arrogance, with pride, with inappropriate self-sufficiency and and self-reliance. And that attitude in the whole city permeated the church. The church was filled with all of those same things. And that attitude that says, we don't need anybody's help. We got things under control, spilled over greatly into their attitude and their quote unquote relationship with God. Hey, we're fine. We don't need anybody's help. We got it under control. You know, that's a dangerous place to live especially as a Christian. If you don't know that, write that one down and make sure you never live there, okay? Because that's bad news. Uh, There was some worship of the gods Zeus and uh, the one we talked about a couple weeks ago, Asclepius. That's hard to say. Asclepius was the, the god of healing and medicine. It was a medical center. And so it just made sense that that would be a part of their false worship. Uh, that stuff flourished in Laodicea. And yet it didn't seem to, to be a problem for the church. It didn't impact or infiltrate the church. Uh, nor is there any mention of Judaizers or uh, Jews who tried to come in and persuade them that Christ wasn't the Messiah. Uh, no other false teachings are mentioned. There doesn't seem to be a huge problem with immorality or pressure from the Roman government. Actually, the the city was incredibly loyal to Rome. Uh, Many other cities around tried to rebel at times from Roman control. Laodicea never did that. And because of that, the the city kind of had favored status in the Roman Empire. So this city is fat and sassy. Okay? Now, this church along with Sardis are the only two churches of the seven that received no positive commendation. None. Now, Sardis, it said, had a faithful remnant, so that maybe is a little bit of a backhanded compliment. There's no such group even mentioned in Laodicea. Laodicea was in a really bad place. Oh, oh one, one final fact about Laodicea before we um, have Ron Damon come and, and read the scripture for us. For as great a city as Laodicea was, and it was a great city in terms of wealth and commerce and advanced medical facilities and industries. I mean, this place was happening in in terms of looking at it from a, a physical, natural perspective. Laodicea had no water supply. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It had to have its water piped in, okay? They built an aqueduct to carry water, either from a hot spring that was five to seven miles away in a place called Hierapolis, or there was a smaller town called Den... Let me say this right. Denizli, that also had a water supply that was piped in to Laodicea. Either way, they had to build this aqueduct to carry water into the town. And here's a, here's a picture of what that looked like. I don't know if you can see that clearly enough, but when you look up into that tunnel, into that tube, do you see the, the white chalky looking stuff in there? Those are lime deposits. Those are uh, calcium carbonate deposits. That's what clamshells, oyster shells, that, that Stuff you take if you have heartburn. It's an antacid kind of a thing. How many of you have ever lived in a place or visited a place where the water was just horrible? 
Now look, look and see who didn't put their hands up and invite them to go with you sometime to a place where the water is horrible. The water in Loveland, Colorado is some of the greatest water in all of the world. We are so blessed with great water. If you've never had bad water, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you have had bad water, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It's, oh, it's just horrible. It's awful. So for all this city had going for it, whew, bad, bad water. Okay? Keep that in mind. That'll play into this story in just a minute. Ron, would you come on up, please? And uh, Ron Damon is going to come read for us. Ron, thank you. I forgot the microphone. Um, Turn it on for him, too, if you would, please. Ron's going to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. So if you would stand, please, as we read together God's word. Thanks for helping us, Ron. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor And blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. So as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thanks, Ron. Just set that back down on the front row. Okay, you can have a seat. Let's uh, work our way through this passage, all right? To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. When Jesus is referred to here as the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the emphasis in this is upon the fact that God is faithful and trustworthy and reliable. More than whether or not Jesus is true or false. It's not going there. It's going to the fact that he is trustworthy, he's reliable. What he says is the truth. Okay? And these people needed to know that because they were not convinced in any way, shape or form that what Jesus was saying to them was the truth about their their spiritual condition. He's called the amen, which means so be it or, or be it so. It is so is what amen means. In this case, he is so, meaning Jesus was who he said he was. When he's called here the beginning of the creation of God, that means he is the source of the origin of creation. It doesn't mean he's the first thing that God ever created. That was one of the things that the church in Colossae wrestled with. Put up the next slide. Uh, There's a verse in Colossians, actually, that, that says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, not the first thing or the first one that God ever made. That word firstborn is, is the word arche, and it's talking about, about the one who is the originator, the source of creation, not that he is a created being. I think there was probably a, a similar heresy that was going on in, in Colossae and a little bit in Laodicea that this needed to be spoken of Jesus. So everyone was was absolutely certain and sure that he wasn't a created being. He was God from the beginning of time. That's who he is, right? In addition to being faithful and true, the one who tells the truth, the one who can be relied upon. Next slide. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I know your deeds is in no way, shape, or form a positive statement, a positive affirmation about these people, all right? The context 
you would think would lend itself to, I know your deeds, attaboy, I'm proud of you. It doesn't at all. What, what this is saying, what it's more like is this. I know your, this is Jesus speaking, I know your deeds, I'm not impressed. I'm not the least bit impressed. You may think you're something, I think you're nothing. Now, if that's a little strong for you, let's get some context here and let's look what's going on. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm, folks, is an expression of nothingness. It's an expression of strong, strong disappointment. Have you ever had a cup of coffee and you're expecting it to be nice and hot and so you... You take a sip and it's just, it's kind of lukewarm and it's like, oh, man, I wish this was, I'd rather have iced coffee than that, or I wish it was hot or I wish it was cold, but oh, or how about you get a can of soda pop? I was going to bring one from home, but all we have is root beer and I don't like root beer. So it would have been probably too over the top in my graphic response to drinking that stuff. But it's like you, you, you pop open a can of uh, soda pop and you expect it to be nice and cold and you... And it's room temperature. Now, I'm sure my wife is one of them. Likes pop room temperature. That's an understatement for what this really says. But if you expect hot coffee and it's lukewarm, or if you expect a nice cold can of soda and it's lukewarm, you're disappointed, right? That's a part of what Jesus is saying to them. But folks, there is so much more going on here. Than, than you probably would ever imagine. That's why context and background to the scripture and to the history and to the story is so very important. Remember, I said earlier, five to seven miles to the north was a city called Hierapolis. It was famous for its hot springs. These were like mineral springs, and people came from all over the region to, to soak in these things because they had healing properties. It was awesome. Ten miles to the east was Colossae. Colossae was very well known for its cold, clear spring water. That's what I'm talking about. You need refreshment on a hot day? Run over to Colossae. Well, don't run because that's way too far. But get over to Colossae and have some of that nice, cold, cold water. We have been taught, we've read the scripture, and we've seen this thing like it's on a continuum, okay? Because the scripture tells us to be fervent in our love, in First Peter, fervent is hot or cold? Fervent is hot. And so we have read the scripture and thought, there's hot, that's good, there's cold, oh, that's bad, and then there's this this lukewarm thing in the middle. And we've tried to look at, I remember growing up looking at this and thinking, well, what could this mean? He'd rather we were cold? He'd rather we were worse off than in the middle? Well, maybe it's because, you know, it's if you're in the middle, nobody can really tell if you're a Christian or not. And at least if you're cold, if you're in sin, people can tell that something's wrong with you and you're all screwed up and you're not being a hypocrite. And I remember playing mental gymnastics with trying to figure this thing out and how, how what does this mean? Here's what it means. What God is saying to them is, hot is good. Cold is good. In the context of what you were made for, what you were made to do, both of those were good. As the cold water in Colossae is good. Don't you like cold water? Jesus said, uh, it's not a PowerPoint slide, but let me make sure I get this one for you. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 42, he talks about somebody who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet will get a prophet's reward. And he talks about giving that prophet a cup of cold water. Is that a bad thing or a good thing to give? It's a good thing. And so what we have to understand here is he's not saying hot is good and cold is bad. I'd rather rather you were somewhere in the middle. What he's saying is hot is good, cold is good too. Because both serve important functions. Both have a purpose. Lukewarm has no purpose. It has no function. And what he's saying to the church at Laodicea is... You are not life-giving, you are not refreshing, you are not encouraging, you have no kind of any form of healing like the hot springs have, and you have no refreshment or encouragement like the cold water has. You're just nothing in the middle. 
Nothing. You're worthless. Would Jesus say they were worthless? Yes, he would if they were. And they are. They were. I will spit you out. Do you know how polite I will spit you out is? Compared to what it really says there. It's spew. It's hurl. It's Ralph. It's barf. It's... Kids, help me. What, what, what am I... Celebuic. Blech! You know, it's... It's, that's what he's saying here. You are disgusting to me to the point where I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Your behavior makes me sick. And you see, one of the things that was going on back then, these pampered citizens of Laodicea, we're always complaining. Oh, the water is just so bad here. It just, oh, it's got that aftertaste. Oh, it just makes me sick. Makes me want to throw up. And Jesus looks at them and say, I'll tell you what makes me want to throw up. You do. How many of you are glad you're not a Laodicean this morning? <laughs> Folks, this is scathing. This is a scathing indictment against them. And Jesus isn't saying it with a whiny voice. He's being as honest and frank as he can be. You make me sick. I want to spit you. I want to throw you up. Because you're of no value. Not only are you a disappointment, you, you revolt me. Do you know it's hard to revolt Jesus? Do, do you, I'm serious. Do you know that? I don't want you sitting here thinking, oh gosh, I did that one little thing wrong and he probably wants to puke me up too. (laughs) No, 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 no. It takes a lot to make Jesus this sick to his stomach. You don't have to worry. If, If you hear that and go, oh God, I hope I'm not doing that, then you're not doing it. If you care, then you're okay. Not that your behavior doesn't need to change. Not that your attitude doesn't need to change. But you're at least still in the game, folks. These people weren't just overtly hostile against the faith. They weren't outright rejecting the faith. They were just so stinking indifferent. They had no faith. Faith was making no difference in their lives whatsoever. They had no zeal, no fervor. Nothing mattered in and for the kingdom of God as far as they were concerned. They were indifferent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, smug, proud, complacent, and apathetic. In addition to being incredibly closed to the Lord Jesus and to the work of His Holy Spirit in their life. This past week in my personal devotions, I was reading in the book of Malachi... Last book in the Old Testament, not Malachi. It's not written by an Italian. It's Malachi, okay? And you read through that book and you find time after time after time the prophet comes and indicts them with something in their behavior that they were doing wrong. In in essence, I know your deeds. And he'd list something. Their response every time was, oh, how did we do that? We didn't do that. Get, Get out of here. We didn't do that. There's an amazing parallel between the attitude of the children of Israel in Malachi and what we read here in the church of Laodicea. Folks, if God ever wants to get your attention about something going on in your life, the wrong response is, oh, come on. How did we do that? You've got to be kidding me. I'm not guilty of that. Your heart and my heart always needs to be open with the attitude of search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Wouldn't you want to know? And if you're sitting here going, I don't think I do, then you don't understand the true spirit of Jesus, even behind this indictment. And we're, we're going to get there in just a moment, okay? Whether it's Malachi or the church in Laodicea, the answer to what's wrong with them that Jesus is lovingly, although it doesn't seem like lovingly, trying to point out to them is not good, healthy, open, honest searching. It's, eh, we're fine. Leave us alone. We're great. Let's, Let's keep reading. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. These are all such self-incriminating statements. Were they rich? 
Yes. Were they wealthy? Yes. In a physical material sense. But so what? In the scope of eternity and what matters in the kingdom of God, where's your money going to get you? You can't take it with you is really the truth because you can't. The church in Philadelphia, you have no power. They didn't. Did Jesus commend that church? Absolutely. The church in Smyrna, you have poverty, but you're rich. Because in the things that mattered, both of those churches had it going on. They knew what was important and were living accordingly. To the church at Laodicea, you think you have power, you think you're rich, but you have nothing in terms of spiritual power and spiritual wealth. That's funny, but not really, because that's what he was saying to them. He accurately assessed their spiritual condition. You're wretched. That means you ought to be terribly unhappy from the fact that you have so much lack and want in your life. That ought to make you grief-stricken. No, we're fine. Leave us alone. We got it under control. You should be miserable. You should be suffering grave distress in your heart. You should understand that you're pitiful. You're so poor. And you're just sinking lower and lower and lower. No, we're not. We're great. Have you seen my bank account lately? You are poor. In spite of all the banking and prosperity in that city, spiritually, you're poor. You're blind. I don't care how much eye salve. I don't care how much friggin' ointment you got. You're blind. You're naked. You can have all the baba black sheep wool that you want and make yourself all the outfits you could ever imagine. This this is a picture of a, a destitute beggar in the worst of poverty, in the worst of conditions. That's what Jesus sees. When they look in the mirror, what's he talking about? He's got no clue. So would you rather look in the mirror and do your own assessment or would you rather hear from the one who is faithful and true and is reliable and who always tells the truth? If you have any question, always vote for number two. Always side with him, okay? This rebuke is, is scathing. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I make that, that vomiting sound. That's what Jesus said to them. But you know what? You have to understand, this is, this is not a general, all-inclusive indictment against people who are wealthy or prosperous or any such thing. Jesus never, ever, ever made that the condition of what he said to anybody. Jesus also never spoke this way to the broken or the wounded or the suffering or the destitute. This rebuke is not about having money. It's not a shame on you for having anything. It's a rebuke about self-sufficiency and arrogance and lack of humility and way too much pride in one's own accomplishments. When I read this, it made me think of that story in, in Luke chapter 18. Let's, let's put this parable up. He also told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves. You want to get to the bottom line of this little story? It's what's in bold up there. This is about those who trust in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men walked up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, probably loud enough for everybody in the room to hear him also. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, he's probably looking at the tax collector even as he's saying that. Adulterers or even this tax collector, I fast twice a week. Whoopee! I pay tithes of all that I get. That was Jesus making that noise, not the Pharisee, okay? But the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his head to heaven. But he was beating his breast and saying, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, some of my best prayers in the morning start like this. God, I am such a mess. Oh, God, I am such a mess. Now, some people might go, well, that doesn't sound very positive, Kent. You need to be more faith-filled than that. I know I do, but I would always rather be honest than pretentious. 
Don't ever stay in that place of, oh God, I'm such a mess. Let God in to fix the mess. Okay? Have the courage to open the closet with him and let him clean that thing with you. But sometimes the best prayers you can ever pray is an honest assessment of where you're at in that moment. God, I am such a mess. Because that's when God gives grace to the humble. Get it? I advise you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. An eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. When Jesus says, I advise you, he says, I'm not going to make you do this. But the one who is faithful and true says, this, re- excuse me, this really is what's best for you. Buy from me. Obviously, figurative language. You can't literally buy with money what you need from him. Can you? It's all grace. It's all a free gift. So this is just an allusion back to, oh yeah, big bad banking commerce center of the Roman Empire. So what? He's getting at that point, okay? And to their assumption of self-sufficiency. You know, we can pretty well take care of ourselves. Oh, well, buy this from me. I think there's some tongue-in-cheek here. You can't possibly buy this from me. You don't don't have enough gold. There's not enough gold in the world to buy this from me. Come to realize how desperate you are in and of yourself. Buy gold refined with fire. That that purity that can only be found in Jesus, okay? Not in yourself, not in your self-righteousness. It can only be found in knowing him. There's no human price tag we can put on this. Get yourself white garments as opposed to that black wool you're so proud of. The righteousness found in him alone to cover your nakedness, to cover your shame. Folks, that is the result of sin. Go back and read the story in the garden. They were naked and ashamed. That was the issue because their sin got to the core of who they were. And apart from Jesus, you're not just guilty. Sentence declared, you have an inner shame. It becomes who you are, not just what you do. There's only one who can cover that shame, and it's Jesus. You see, in in the Sermon on the Mount, put the next slide up, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In the Greek language, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness. There's a definite article in the original language. And this isn't talking about people who hunger and thirst to be good. It's talking about those who hunger and thirst for Jesus. Because it's only in him that you are righteous and I am righteous. We sang a song earlier today about lifting holy hands. And I kind of did a little look around the room. And some people can't raise their hands because they look at themselves and go, I'm not holy. Are you a Christian? Then in Jesus, you are. Because that's how he sees you. But Kent, I got this, I got that. Well, that's a part of letting him in and cleaning the closet with you. Letting him in and helping you with some of that stuff. But God sees you through what Jesus did on the cross. And he sees you as holy. So when you raise those hands, you're raising holy hands. Who are you going to believe? What you tell yourself or what Jesus says about you? Always go with number two, remember? Put this next slide up too again. Buy for yourself eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is the only one that can open our eyes from spiritual blindness. We can't do it ourselves. The scripture doesn't say search yourself and see. It says search me, O God. And please, would you show me what you see in there? He's the faithful and true witness. He'll always tell you the truth. Always, always, always. So I have a question I want to ask you today. How many of you are praying for somebody you love that needs that gold refined by fire, that white garment, that eye salve, especially that eye salve? Keep praying for them because God always hears that prayer. It's it's the heart of the Lord Jesus to want to answer that prayer. So I think we are well within bounds to continue to pray for our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our loved ones, for anybody that we, and not in some judgmental fashion like the Pharisee and the tax collector, but just in a good, honest appraisal. God, they they need help. They need their eyes open to what they're doing, to how they're living, to the choices they're making. 
They need to understand, Jesus, that you are the one who wants to clothe them in that white garment. You're the one that wants to bring that refinement into their life so they're in you, they're pure and holy before God. Let me see him again. How many of you are praying for somebody you love and care about for that? Don't stop, okay? I think this is another one of those we can't lose if we don't quit kind of a thing. Don't quit. Keep praying. Are you tired just listening to this? I'm worn out preaching this. I mean, this is like, oh, this is heavy. Are you ready for a little shift in gears? Huh? Some, some better news? Oh, please. Well, it gets way better. Not that this is bad, but to see the perspective on this that God himself puts on this, the encouragement that there is in this scripture. After he says all these things about these people and tells them to buy this gold refined with fire and get white garments and to get eye salve, he says this in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's like the best news in all the world, folks. If you see what that says, even in the midst of this scathing, painful indictment that really only comes upon them because they refuse to look at their own spiritual condition. Who did Jesus have a trouble with in the, in the Gospels? The poor? The sinners? The prostitutes? The tax collectors? No, it was one group. Who were they? The Pharisees. Because they were so self-righteous and so self-sufficient. In the midst of this scathing rebuke of these people who, for the life of them, would not take a look at their own spiritual condition, it's still all motivated by love, isn't it? It's still all motivated by a desire to see genuine repentance. Even in the most severe chastising by the Lord that I think you find in just about the whole Bible, right there it is. It's all motivated by his love and his desire to extend grace and so that people can and will repent. And, and then mercy, once, once repentance happens. Behold, that's one of those pay attention. Look at this. Hear what I'm really saying. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And we'll dine with him and he with me. Uh, the message of this is, I don't care how screwed up you are. I don't care how messed up you are. I don't care how self-sufficient you are. I don't care how much you think you got it all together. If you are but willing to humble yourselves, be honest in, in what I show you. Be honest in your assessment of where you are at with me. Lord, I am a mess. I see Jesus kind of rolling up his sleeves sitting in another place at the table and saying, you are, come on in. Let's eat. Let's talk. Let me help you with that mess that you are. Commentators think there are two different things this is talking about. This is a personal invitation, and I absolutely believe that it's, it's that. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone who loves me and obeys my teaching, my father will love them, will come to them and make our home with them. So there's that sense of personal invitation. But I also think in the context of the whole book of the Revelation, there's something bigger going on here. And that is uh, the marriage supper of the lamb. That time when Jesus comes again, he returns for his bride. There's a, an individual sense to this. And I think there's also an overlaying corporate sense to this. That there's a day coming when there is a feast that's going to happen. And Jesus said, if you want to try and punch your own ticket and get in on your own goodness and you think you're fine, oh, I'm sorry, we ate without you. Or there's a heart that just says, Lord, I hear you knocking and I'm opening the door and I'm inviting you in. I think in light of this specific passage in the church at Laodicea, there's something else going on here too. And, and that he who hears my voice and opens the door, I think has a very strong sense also of genuine conversion experience. Because the reality is the church in Laodicea was filled with people who did not know Christ. They were great at playing church. They were as self-righteous as could be. 
But when it came to an actual conversion experience, a, a bowing the knee to, to Jesus as, as Savior and Lord, wasn't happening. And so I, I think that that also is the case here. And I think that scripture is one that God intends to speak even today in this place. That if you're here today and you listen to this and you, you, you may rightly say, man, I haven't done, may, okay, maybe I did one thing on that whole list, a little bit. I'm not near as bad off as those people. Wow, they were a mess. I'm, I'm a little mess. I'm, I'm cluttered. They're a mess. I'm cluttered. The point is, if you've never given your life to Jesus, he stands at your door and knocks as well. And today would be a great day to make that decision, to make that commitment to follow him. And when we're done today, I'd love to talk to you about that. If it's something you've never done and you sit here and listen and go, wow, I've been playing church my whole life. I think you get the point. The last thing, he who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's not a statement of we'll get equal position with Jesus. We're not going to become little gods, okay? We will share in all that the father has given to the son because we are poor in spirit. We understand our own bankrupt condition apart from Jesus. But there's never any confusion that we are invited guests, okay? But the tables, I mean, we get it all. It's all ours, but not in some equality way with, with Jesus. You know, I, we, we read this passage, we go through this passage, and, and I was thinking early this morning that, you know, when it comes to blatant, obvious sin, the big ones, quote-unquote, that we'd call them, we all know what would be on that list. If I, if I said, okay, everybody right now, write down the five big sins in life, and then we compared our list, I bet those lists would look pretty similar. I'm not going to tell you what they are, because you already know what they are. But those weren't the kind of things the church at Laodicea was struggling with. And I think, in a lot of ways, it's, it's not just the biggest or the only struggle in the church in America. we got things a lot more subtle, don't we? And yet a lot more deadly. Those things that kind of are the creeping, prevailing mindset of the culture of the United States of America. That's what plagues the church in America today. That's the great enemy I think we need to guard against. That smug sense of self-sufficiency. I can take care of myself. I got it going on. I got what I need. Don't you worry about it. I'm in control. I'm in control of my life. I've got it figured out. I've got myself cared for till the day I die. And I'm comfortable. And comfort's a good thing. And Comfort's not bad, but comfort can really lull us into missing God's best. You see, I think that's more of what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 12 when he said in verse number 2, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to finish with this today. Um, the Emerge group. How many are in a, who go to Emerge are in first service? Normally they go to second service. Okay, Emerge, that's our 20-something group. They're reading a book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. Way to go, Emerge. I read this book quite a while ago. This is an amazing book. Um, if you're a little more than 20-something... You can still go get this book and benefit greatly from it. But he's got a chapter in this book on being lukewarm. It's called Profile of the Lukewarm. And I just want to read a few statements to you, okay? And he's got scripture to back these up. But I just want to read these statements to you. Lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It is what is expected of them, what they believe, quote-unquote, good Christians do, so they go. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra and it's easy and safe to give, they do so. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit in both at church and outside the church. They care more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their hearts and their lives. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. 
They don't genuinely hate sin or aren't truly sorry for it. They merely, they're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life in Jesus that he offers is better than the old sinful life they live. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, but they don't do radical things for Christ. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, fanatics, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus just expected of his followers. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus and he is indeed a part of their lives, but he's only a part. They give him a section of their time, their money, and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits as to how far they'll go or how much time, money, and energy they're willing to give. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intently consider the life to come. Regarding this, C.S. Lewis writes, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians... It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor. They are quick to point out, Jesus never said money is the root of all evil, only that the love of money is. Untold numbers of lukewarm people feel called to minister to the rich. Very few feel called to minister to the poor. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. They want to do the bare minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much of them. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. This focus on safe living keeps them from sacrificing and risking for God. Lukewarm people don't live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured out and mapped out ahead of time. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they are in good health. The truth is their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than average, But beside that, they aren't really very different from your typical unbelievers. They equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness, but they couldn't be more wrong. Now, if you hear that and go, I hate Francis Chan. (laughs) Mind your own business. This is our business. It is. It really is. You see, I, I, I wouldn't for one minute want to ask you, so how bad does this make you feel? Because that's the wrong question. It is. You know what the right question is? Do you have the courage to open those doors and let Jesus come in and take a look at your life and, and what's going on? For the sake of freedom. For the sake of relationship with Him. For the sake of your life being effective and purposeful in the kingdom of God. I wouldn't want any of those things to get in your way of being all that God desires you to be. Would you? I hope not. I'm going to put this next scripture up on the board. We're going to have a baptism here uh, this morning as we finish out our time together. Um, We talked at staff on Thursday a little bit about this. Um, People who are being baptized are not lukewarm. And I hope the water's at least lukewarm and not cold. I would that it were hot, but I don't know if it will be or not. But these folks are not lukewarm, are they? They are coming before us to give testimony to the fact that they are believers in the Lord Jesus. They have received him as Savior and Lord. And they are making a public declaration of the fact that they are his And I think that's a wonderful thing. If you're a visitor here today, this may um, unsettle you a little bit, but that's okay. Um, Baptism around here is like the Broncos winning the Super Bowl. Oh, that's hard to say. I'd say you know who, but that may never happen in my lifetime. So 
meaning that we, we celebrate these moments, okay? So if people are cheering and whistling and clapping, it's our way of saying to these folks, we support you, we love you, we are with you in this, okay? Okay? So after the baptism, I'll come back up and kind of pray us done. But... The ministry team, there are folks here trained to know how to pray for people. Um, after the baptism, ministry team, why don't you make your way forward? Because what we talked about today uh, might touch some of you. you. You might be a person who has never made that commitment to Christ, and today is your day to do that. Uh, what we talked about today might have struck a chord in your heart, and God has spoken to you about some of those very issues of control or self-sufficiency or, or whatever it might be. Um, misplaced trust and faith. It should be more in Jesus and not in stuff. Or you could have something totally unrelated to today's message going on that you just want somebody to pray with you for. Those folks are here to do that, okay? So uh, why don't you stand, please? I want to pray for you. Ministry team, if you'd make your way forward for those that might need some prayer, that would be great. So um, we are... um going to make a little shift in our study. All right. We're through the seven churches and now we're going to shift a a little bit more to the prophetic word that the spirit gives to John to share. Um, It's not like starting over in any way, shape or form, but it is kind of a a shift in gears in that um, if there's anybody out there that you've been dying to get to church, a friend, a neighbor or somebody, I am astounded as to how many people are interested in this topic. And if you go online, there's a little infomercial that we did on our website about this topic that if you don't quite know how to invite somebody, get them online, show them this commercial. Steph, it's what, 30-some seconds? Yes, okay. It's 30-some seconds long, and it'll nail them. So if you got folks you want to bring, haven't been here before, great time to bring them because we're going to look together at how this mystery unfolds. It's not a time to be scared. It's time to be encouraged. It's a time to be filled with great hope because Jesus is coming again and we want to be ready. Amen. All right. So let's pray. Father, um, thanks for today. Uh, thanks for these seven letters, because I do believe they, they lay out before us a plumb line, a standard for preparation for your church, for the days in which we live, and to prepare us for that day, whenever that day is coming, when you are coming again. Help us take to heart all that we've learned over these last few weeks. Uh, help us By your grace and mercy, put those things into practice in our lives. Help us, God, understand who you really are and the help that you want to be in all of our lives when we struggle, when we wrestle. Help us understand that it's not about convincing ourselves or anyone else that we're good enough in ourselves. But it's that humble, honest, open confession before you that says, Oh, Jesus, make me who you want me to be. Because I know you'll always answer that prayer. You always have, you always will. And so uh, we're grateful today to be encouraged by your word. And uh, pray that uh, with your help this week, we'll live it out in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Have a great week. See you next week.